0: Welcome to Besteck, the public procurement podcast. Today, Marta and I are talking about centralized purchasing bodies and how to stay up to date in public procurement law.
1: Welcome to Besteck, the public procurement podcast. In this podcast, Dr. Willem Janssen and Dr. Marta Andhoff discuss public procurement law issues, their love of food and academic life. In each episode, Willem, Marta, and their guests search for answers to intriguing public procurement questions. This is Besteck. Let's dish up public procurement law. Hola, Marta. Hello, hello.
0: <laughs> it's, I thought I'd change it up a little bit. Anyway, didn't, I didn't so get the response I was hoping for, but good <laughs> to talk to you again uh, today. Um, uh, like I announced, we're talking about centralized purchasing bodies, Um, And this is partially sparked because of a project, a research project, a book project that we're both involved in, um, which is an edited volume led by uh, Karina Rysvighama, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. You're you're the Uh Danish expert in this and Mario Mario Comba. uh, I don't know if if we have an Italian Italian expert, expert but anyways, they're they're editing a volume about it um, and you have written or are still writing a chapter about procurement techniques uh, and the particularities for it for um, uh, centralized purchasing bodies and I contributed with a um, national report about the Netherlands and and what's been going on there in terms of uh, aggregated centralized joint procurement Mm -hmm. Um, and what are we going to do today is just I think you know, maybe a bit of a teaser to the book, but also to to get the discussions going on this topic, also in the remits of Bestek. So we'll be talking a bit about the Netherlands as an example, and we'll be looking at some of the procurement techniques of these, uh, of these bodies. How does that sound?
1: That sounds pretty good. Yeah, I think it's just interesting to look into the central purchasing bodies, also from perspective that um, they are very... Um, present in some member state, right? Very much connected, whether you have decentralized or centralized procurement system. In others, not so much. So maybe for some of our listeners that uh, do not have much experience with central purchasing bodies, that could be potentially quite interesting. Yeah,
0: as like a, a reference point or discussions that also influence the national uh, national debate for sure. Um to get us going, um there's some articles in the directive, right, that regulate uh the functioning, I suppose, or the, the the remit of uh centralized purchasing bodies. Um I'm looking at article 37 to 39 here.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So that's where we can find some information about where what are those centralized purchasing bodies, what are the centralized purchasing activities. Mm-hmm. Then we have 38 um, that talks about occasional joint procurement. So it's something rather ad hoc, right, Um, that you decide to collaborate um, together. And the third one that talks about procurement uh, involving contracting authorities from different member states, which is also a little bit... (laughs) Kind of Star Trek at this point, right? Because this sort of talks about you having a different—if that is centralized purchasing bodies, let's say in Netherlands and Denmark doing procurement together and procuring together, or um, uh, more local-based contracting authorities again collaborating through the having this cross borders uh, collaboration—and and and that of course brings so much. questions and, and also legal challenges along the way. There's an interesting study done, I believe, for commission um, that was the cross-border. It was specifically, I think, the Danish central purchasing body ski and the German one. And I am unfortunately don't remember the name, but they conducted this type of cross-border procurement. I think maybe Austria also was involved. And, and there is a study... Maybe we can see if we can find it, link it in, in, in the yeah, stack, sure. uh, description. And it's a study that kind of describes how they did that, right? And what were potential legal challenges. I uh, think also perhaps cr- to
0: spur like the, the development of cross border yeah, activity. Yeah, what's right? happening
1: there. Uh, quite strongly criticized by, by some of our colleagues, Albert, uh, sort of... <laughs> giving you a bit of a shout out here. I mean as a as 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 someone who really dives into these topics and recognized a lot of the challenges along the way. But I think yeah, so this is the most complex. I think on the other hand side, the occasional one Is um, maybe more applicable to the decentralized um, procurement systems when maybe more on ad hoc, a particular regional players decide to collaborate together. Um, We can see a lot of regional um, purchasing collaboration done in the UK and Denmark. There are also some, I think, in mother, other member states too. But ultimately, so what the central purchasing body and the central purchasing activities are, it's a form of middle agent. I think that's a way, good way to describe it. So it's a body that... Um, is established and ultimately sets up the um, frame for procurements uh, and conducts procurements in the name of others, in the name of others understood here as contracting authorities. So we have the body being the central purchaser and the um, users of, uh, of the usually procurement techniques, let's say such as framework agreements, will be then contracting authorities, which utilize that. The, the logic behind it often is to also um, help out, really, and somehow take away the burden, right, of setting procurements and dealing with all those things. I think central purchasing bodies and their activities also come quite handy in the discussion of real development within procurement and by that i mean introduction of more and more innovation technology sustainability all these complex things because central purchasing bodies ultimately it will be a team of people and experts, right? Some of the central purchasing bodies that I had a pleasure to collaborate with over the years will have a team of lawyers and economists, and then they will get some engineers and other specialists to come in and help them out, set up this huge procurement that then later on a local municipality or comuna or school can ultimately use. So that's that's the broad logic behind um, central purchasing
0: bodies. So it's really so, their core, core task, right? So that's what's interesting is very often the idea is you, because of the tasks that you're given under national law, you then turn out to be a contracting authority. And that means that to, in order to fulfill those tasks, you need to purchase stuff on the market, simply said, and that means that you have to abide by the public procurement rules but that obligation is then moved to the centralized purchasing body and then just to 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 finish off the uh, the introduction because this aggregation like you said has a lot of benefits but there's two types right two types that generally Mm -hmm. occur or at least that the directive refers to in terms of what the what the directive says right so you can be an intermediary or you can even uh, take on a wholesaler role, right? That you actually purchase on behalf and you have stocks, right? So that's generally what the bigger uh, the bigger um, role, is. role is. Instead mm-hmm. of saying, hey, do you want to tag along for this procurement? We're organizing it. You can opt in, opt out perhaps. Um, and we <clears throat> set up the procurement, but you're actually the one signing the contract, right? In the end. Yes, there is also...
1: There is also at some point uh, discussion or a certain lack of clarity have been on the division of task responsibilities, particularly legal also um, responsibilities between contracting authorities and those central purchasing uh, bodies, these units. Uh, Mainly, if something is done non-compliant, who is responsible? Is it the central purchasing body or is it contracting authority? And there was a little bit of uncertainty before um, the directives that we have right now came in because we have a clarification of that saying that ultimately each of the units of the organization is responsible for their part, right? So if mm-hmm. we look, the let's say, you, let's use framework agreements as an example. If we have central purchasing body establishing the framework agreements, so everything in context of legal compliance uh, that is done, the responsibility for that is is with central purchasing body. But let's say later on, a specific aspect of carrying out Mini competition and awarding the contract under such a framework agreement, uh, that will then stay with contracting authorities. In other words, everyone is responsible for what they actually do,
0: right? So that's a bit of cl- clarification that occurred. Now there's still a lot of discussions going on about the exact remits of of this uh, of this article. But in a way, what you see, I think, in much of the uh, the implementation is that very much a copy paste effort right in terms mm-hmm. of what has been implemented um so if if we move on to the netherlands right um i think the the dutch situation of joint procurement is based on one fundamental principle uh which um, marcel stout's um a, a director of one of the uh, most prominent uh, centralized purchasing bodies in the Netherlands, uh, co-author of the chapter that I wrote, which what we called is procurement autonomy. Really, you get the tasks, and then you're responsible for purchasing whatever you need to fulfill those tasks as a central, as a con- sorry, as a contracting authority, and whether you mm-hmm. then cooperate or not for that need because you think that's smart to team up with um, with another municipality that's close in your region has similar needs as you do, the population's fairly similar, etc. The choice that you have is free, right? So with the, I would say, approximately 400 to 450 uh, governments that we have, or different types of governments, so say municipalities, provinces, water boards, uh, ministries, it's all up to them to decide if they want to cooperate. And I think that's Uh, One of the first differing aspects of what happens in Europe is in a lot of European countries, you see a difference, or at least between all of them, you see like this decentralized approach that we have in the Netherlands, like autonomy, or this more of a forceful thing going on where all contracting authorities of a certain type link up with one centralized Mm -hmm. body and their purchases, say through framework agreements, are all aggregated, right? Right. Yeah. So there's a difference I, between how obligatory it is.
1: For sure. And I think that is also um the very basis, the fundaments of, let's say, whether you have centralized or joint procurements, et cetera, et cetera, whether they are mandatory or not, as you mentioned, it lies the fundaments lie somewhere else totally than procurement. It's something to do with history, with a general uh structuring of 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 the governance within member states. Um I also kind of think that maybe it also has something to do with size i tend to see that there is much more centralization within smaller member states um so 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 there are different reasons right but that also ties us to this two ultimate uh, characteristics on the one hand side defined as benefits and another as disadvantages of aggregated procurement. Ultimately, that is um, the subject matter or the substance of the activity of central purchasing bodies. And that is on, on the benefit, you get the aggregation, you get the benefits of economy of scale, right? In other words, if you buy in bulk, you are able to get really good deals. You hopefully are able to get... Um, bigger discounts, etc., etc. In context of establishing some complex procurements, you have accumulation of this professionalization within procurement because those units have that and those are all the beneficial elements of it. As a downside or the challenge, of course, we are talking about Um, Issues of competition law broadly understood, right? Um, Closing Mm -hmm. the markets, uh, excluding from the markets, small and medium enterprises, the topic of division then of this huge procurements into lots to accommodate participation of SMEs, etc. is wildly discussed. And, and and the general aspects uh yeah of competition law saying, well, how we ensure that there is a good entry to the market for newcomers, et cetera, et cetera. And finally the the last uh downside or challenge rather, I should say, it's also the fact that we are in this space where um we, we all know well that one size does not fill all and you may have a sp- specific different needs as a smaller contracting authority that somehow may be let's say obliged to use some of frameworks or even taps into on voluntary basis to use them and and then there is a bit of a challenge because or you can use something that is there but it's not entirely really fitted to your needs or yeah. you can choose to run with it on your own and create your own procurement right
0: and i think that's also what's interesting is this, uh, uh, really nice research done by uh, Fredo Schotanus, a colleague of mine at, at Utrecht uh, University Center for Public Procurement. And he, I think, has this this great highway matrix, as he calls it. Like there's different mm-hmm. types of procurement and how intense they cooperate together. So you would have um, a hitchhike model in which you just every now and then you jump into someone's car and you tag along and you work together. Mm-hmm to carpooling right you do that uh-huh. more on a regular Something more
1: basis systematized. yeah
0: and then you have what they call is the ultimate and being a great fan of, of of drive to survive on netflix about formula one you have these <laughs> formula one <laughs> team models right so really okay. intense cooperation like where you would always work together and what's interesting is that that's like turned into quite a a, a patchwork in the netherlands of different types of cooperations what we see Above on the, the- map yeah. So there's the Dutch Centre for, uh, or Dutch Expertise Centre for Public Procurement, Piano, counted um, 51 ty- fifty one types of cooperation. So not differing, but 51 that are currently there, um, ranging from like uh, sh- shared service centres to complete mergers of back offices. So broader than just procurement to actually setting up a separate legal entity, right, that would then become... Uh, uh, responsible for purchasing for say a, a group of municipalities now we see most of it happening on the municipality level but what's interesting and that's data that kind of struck me as well is that uh, say in uh, it, it's increased one uh, structural local uh, collaborative procurement um, but that data shows that almost 38% of all Dutch citizens were like affected by structural procurement, right? Or the outcomes of it. And that almost 64% of all local authorities are involved, right? So that's, even though it's not obligatory, <laughs> Dutch public authorities, or at least say municipalities, do see significant benefits to it because they're doing it, right? Even though it's not obligatory, they are really, um, uh, really working on it. And then you see that it it's construed in legal personalities by public law, but also by private law, say foundations. But also depending on what the the purpose is, right? So if it's only knowledge sharing, right, you wouldn't set up a separate legal entity. If it's really purchasing together, that becomes more interesting. So it not being obligatory doesn't mean that it doesn't happen. And I thought that was an interesting um, aspect to see. Um, uh, What isn't happening in the Netherlands is uh, the warehouse option. At mm. all, so um, or at least I haven't found any examples of it. And the Dutch legislator in the 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 the, the, the preparatory documents of when they implemented this these provisions that you refer to actually seem to have like also <clears throat> deterred contracting authorities from it. Right, so that it's it's not been uh, it's it's still allowed, but it kind of refers to yeah, it doesn't really happen.
1: It's like if you have to. <laughs> It doesn't really happen at
0: the moment because, like, there's a um, there's there's a stock risk, right? If mm. you hold stock as a as a wholesaler, the value of the stock might fluctuate, which then means that um, that you could run the risk of going bankrupt or losing a lot of money, right? Whereas if you just purchase on behalf of others, that risk sticks to the individual contracting authority. So, mm. I thought that was interesting, also because. I know uh, some centralized purchasing bodies in the Netherlands um, are exploring that option because it could be useful, right? If you have hold stock on behalf of a lot of centralized, uh, a lot of contracting authorities, there are benefits to it. Say, if you would need it really quickly, right? So think of mouthpieces or ventilators, right? It is a very extreme option. If that would have been on stock, it could have been Distributed a lot more quickly yeah. uh, now, taking the pandemic out. You could do that for pens or tarmac as well, right? So I think that's a, that's a, in either of in either world, I'm mixing my Dutch and English. That's at least an interesting um, uh, aspect from the Dutch uh, Dutch uh, area. What's another? Well, it also
1: sounds uh, you know a little bit starting to be connected with your beloved in-house, right? So I think that's why you're yes, starting to. That's what I'm getting. That's why
0: I'm speeding up. Stop interrupting <laughs> exactly. me.
1: <laughs> because i'm like that's ultimately i think where you really want to focus yeah so one you?
0: other just now that you mention it there, marta uh only because you mentioned it of course m- most of these um and I, I do genuinely think this is interesting not because i like in-house but also, <laughs> I've, I've got, well, i can't say anything right, right? <laughs> um is that they were mostly set up if they were set up in a in a separate legal entity they were compliant with the tech all exemption at the time and many Dutch authorities haven't even seen the option of becoming an intermediary or a warehouse, right? So they still look at it as, okay, we com- we're compliant with the tecol exemption. All the uh, uh, linked up municipalities say they have shares, they, su- they they have control, all the activities are done for... Uh, for the, the the controlling contracting authority, so we fulfill that that exemption instead of having to rely on 37 to 39 in the directive. So I think that's interesting. Um, and as a second in-house issue because it's that's very linked in the Netherlands is the question if we aggregate procurement, right? is the state one contracting authority? So is this the Dutch state as such? Is that actually one contracting authority that purchases on the market, or actually are we looking at separate units that are purchasing? Um and there's been so much debate in the Netherlands, which has been completely absent in other member states. I know some mm. stuff will happen in Denmark, but this has been a relatively like sheltered discussion that we've had. Um it's I don't interesting, know if, if that means oh. that you know if if we're totally wrong in the netherlands or well, if everyone else is missing updates. out which is <laughs> yeah so yeah, in, yeah. It, without going too much into that i think there's so there's two in-house angles to it and i know that in-house is also what something that was uh, important in finland right they also relied on the tickle exemption uh, quite extensively in this light uh, but, but then-
1: this this patchwork to to try to I very interesting to hear as you mentioned broadly um, the the Netherlands approach you could define as this patchwork of things popping up around and and of a different intensity. Do you think that there is an interest to somehow uh, systematize it, or actually there is a certain level of um, not hesitation, but actually the opposite of now wanting to do that, wanting actually to keep it quite decentralized. What, what, what is your feeling of the, of the market and legislation broadly, and I guess administration broadly speaking? Are you anyhow buying into the, you know, aggregation and economy of scale through this? Or you think that rather more important is the subsidiarity and the discretion left to the contracting authorities?
0: Um, I understand why we have this system, but I think in uh, in a lot of ways it's limiting Dutch public procurement to develop on areas where it could be improved. Let's put it this way. So on the one hand, I see discussions of we need to be, when we ask for sustainable solutions or when we ask for innovation, we need to be more coherent on how we approach the market. So when one municipality asks this and the other then asks this, market parties can't respond to all those different types, right? And that hinders the development of sustainable society or same for innovation or social goals, right? So we've got this call for standardization, but then we've got a decentralized system, which means that the individual decision-making of each procurement is still rests with the contracting authorities, right? So the creates a problem in if you want to create standardization i think more centralization or more regionalization or whatever you how, what level you would take it is actually beneficial if we want to become more uniform as purchasing bodies so in mm-hmm. a way uh, to answer your question i don't see that happening very quickly i do see this wholesaler option perhaps materializing but I think we need to broaden the debate and say, look, if we want more standardization, why aren't we looking at centralization?
1: Mm. That's,
0: I think, where the Dutch debate is kind of like limited it's, by how we're structured constitutionally.
1: Can I just ask one more thing that I was wondering? Um, I don't remember. I read, obviously, your 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 chapter, but uh, right now it doesn't pop in my head. Do you have as the existing central uh, purchasing bodies, are they of a quite um, general nature or you have a sectoral specific one? So let's say... S- specific central purchasing body focusing i don't know on it or focusing on medicine or etc etc are they quite general in nature
0: depending on what the cooperating parties envisioned at the first instance so it can be quite specific but most of them do everything so they take over Mm -hmm. if say we have the formula one model right to reference Mm -hmm. that Um, um if we have that then you would have a full broad scope of from healthcare to infrastructure to okay. ICT. So, but again, that's a good point that you raise because that differs as well in the member states, right? So in the, mm-hmm. there's differences there as well, right? So this is... It's such a economically, culturally, politically, constitutionally, and I don't know how many elise I can make up like a yeah. topic that it's so ingrained it's in how we operate. Yeah,
1: absolutely, it's something so much broader than than procurement. Yeah, because the 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 reason why I ask you know um, to 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 conclude that is that I need to say that uh, there is a specific angle to central or purchasing or this joint purchasing that I that I uh, sort of tangibly being drawn to. And what I mean by that is that if it's a specific sectoral collaboration, let's say on ITs or let's say on infrastructure, as you mentioned, and medicine and so on, because I think that in context of uh, innovation or in context, again, of sustainability, if you want to do things on large scales and if you want to create, because I think often when we talk about sustainability, We talk about, well, there needs to be a certain level of demand to, let's say, standardize particular green products, right? If there is not enough demand, then you will have, let's say, organic or clean products, but ultimately they will be quite expensive, so I think that I'm I'm quite fond that if you have a particular sector or uh collaboration like that and you can create on the one hand side this economy of scale and on the other hand side you have enough of really professional team to carry out such a complex procurement, then I think that the success of that can be quite great and then the outcomes you know of establish technical specification award criteria good practices then that can be broadly disseminated to the market and then the smaller contracting authorities can learn from it right and then also because you created this demand you have let's say now this market for i don't know Green cleaning products, right, or chemicals or whatever. Then also the price point hopefully um, is 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 not that high, or at least we go going towards the uh, situation when 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 uh, the price point is leveled with a traditional product. So yeah. I think it's there is a possibility, you know, of there are obviously risks and challenges of such an approach, but I think there are some good opportunities of creating this this market and doing this procurement in a quite good way.
0: So if, like, in, a, in a nutshell, um, that links up really well with the uh, a recent initiative in the Netherlands, uh, which is supported broadly by all these governments um, about buyer groups. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason why I didn't mention it before is because they don't actually buy together, right? But they're cooperating, right? They're multiple governments working together, mostly central governments, to... Um, in light of these sustainability goals really think about how will we approach the market right what criteria but they don't will we buy set? themselves but they don't actually buy right okay. but that mm-hmm. it's it's yeah. an initial step right towards yeah. that so i think that would be really uh, interesting, uh, interesting to see what happens uh what happens there um so i think what w- what the netherlands does really well or at least mm, that's maybe not how should phrase it but it starting from this procurement autonomy, it allows them to really <clears throat> procure the way they want to, right? Mm. And I think then we're kind of heading towards like, what are the specific techniques or is there perhaps a difference in the techniques of centralized purchasing bodies and other, other bodies? But perhaps you could add uh, a bit about that.
1: Yeah, sure. So um, while Willem has been with his co-author writing the report on Netherlands, we've been asked with my dear colleague and friend, uh, Dr. Roxana Varnu. To write a chapter on procurement techniques and specifically how procurement techniques are used by central purchasing bodies and and, and look into the practice. The way how this works with this type of um, publication is that we ultimately use the national report, the national chapters, so the one amongst others that Willem uh, co-wrote, as source of data. And then we read through all of them and we use them as source of data to um, prepare our comparative chapter. In context of techniques, really what came through the chapters that um, are part of this uh, upcoming publication is that still a very dominant procurement technique uh, that is there uh, is uh, our uh, framework agreements. And and that is to say, of course, that some, as, as you, Willem, mentioned in some member states, the central purchasing uh, activities are not very developed or not super popular, but yep, exactly. in those ones, in those ones that that there are, the predominantly used technique um, are framework agreements, and there are a lot of interesting aspects. I in saw all you that. smile,
0: so- by the way, when you said framework agreements. Sorry, but I'm gonna give it back to you. Like, you yeah. yeah. T- yeah look. You
1: were waiting for that. I, I was just good.
0: waiting when you started giving me mm-hmm, uh, about in-house. <laughs> I saw you smile when you started talking about framework. But keep going. Talk about framework agreements. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's yeah. So so the way how framework agreements are used uh, by central purchasing body differs uh, slightly. Uh, there is quite a lot of interesting approaches with uh, more and more mandatory framework agreements, which is kind of interesting because it goes back to what you said that uh, within some of those central purchasing activities, you can have a situation in which you are mandated as a contracting authority to use them. Uh, And then automatically uh, you becoming part, let's say, of framework agreement and that may be mandated. So um, across the the different member states, what we can see is that there are certain framework agreements that are being established that are mandatory for particular um, contracting authorities to use them. That can be, for example, central government units, right? So let's say you have central purchasing bodies that... Um, conduct framework agreements to which uh, specific users group identify our ministries, central central government uh, units, and for those they can be, uh, for example, mandatory. And there are types of such a framework agreements uh, in 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 Danish uh, in Danish system. Uh, on the other hand side, you have the type of framework agreements that are being established as mandatory instead of. Uh, a bit of hybrid of mandatory and discretionary because the first step is discretionary, which is you can choose to be part of them. You're not obliged to. But when you choose to be part of them, it's a type of buy-in. So you actually may need to also pay to be part of framework agreement. And then when you decided to be part of them, you're also then obliged to use them. And there are, you know, also different levels. I just wanted to highlight that we're talking about different levels of obligation because in my first example... The obligation is between contracting authorities and the central purchasing body, right? Now, in my second example is that you Biden, so you have a type of obligation towards the central purchasing body. But as a consequence of you as a contracting authority later on not using, let's say, that framework agreement... And the supplier who was a framework agreement, when they realize, let's say, let's say light bulbs, let's use something simple, right? And there is one specific supplier, it's a single supplier framework agreement. They're supposed to supply those light bulbs for all members of framework agreements that were mandatory when you buy into them. And then that supplier finds out that you actually buy. Bought your light bulbs outside. You establish your own procurement. So, there is also a question here that um, the supplier on the framework can potentially sue you for not actually obliging um, within the framework and not buying from him right when you when you commit it to that so there are lots of interesting aspects of 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 that type and what is also in context of central purchasing body which again talking about you know moving to this totally kind of quirky complex that was discussion of whether you can establish a framework agreement for a framework agreement
0: mm. yeah so you
1: kind of very
0: meta right now
1: yeah yeah so you kind of this is where half the different. crowd is
0: tuned out but keep going <laughs>
1: Yeah, yeah, but I'm not going to dive into it because no. I feel the same about it. I'm like, well, this just becomes a bit, you know, but but that just to highlight that um, complexity, that there perhaps. Are, yeah, complexity. Absolutely. And the one um, other point in that is, I think, a bit specific also to uh, framework agreements done by central purchasing bodies is also because we are talking about this economies of scale and and huge aggregation is a specific question of how you deal with extremely large uh, product groups. So let's say that uh, your framework that you're establishing is on supplies and you got in thousands or even ten thousands of different product groups. Let's say, you know, office supplies and God knows how many different types of pens and pencils and whatever else, right? And 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 questions that are being asked and, and there is a certain level of unclarity there is whether you can have a type of more general descriptions of product groups or whether you really need to... enumerate in technical specification also of each individual product and then what if you just don't buy one of them and like how much uh, discretion you have up here because when we're talking about such a huge uh, product groups right that becomes a bit complex and how you assess it can you assess it again on more general terms or very very specifically so I think that those are the very specific uh, things to framework agreements now, you need to just uh, somehow, because I can see you in camera, you need to indicate to me at some point, when how are we in time? So I need to of know course. how. Keep going. Refer- have fr- I
0: think framework <laughs> agreements is by far the biggest chunk. And if I can also make a reference to um, one of our previous episodes about absolute maximums, right, of framework agreements. May uh, I say
1: the most successful episode of our podcast so far?
0: I would tend to say it's actually the most, (laughs) yeah, those are the ones about Stadtkohlen or maybe some other things about in-house. But anyways, uh, the data speaks for itself, but let's not dwell on that. (laughs)
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. I agree. But um, besides framework agreements, of course, we have other uh, procurement techniques, a dynamic purchasing system being uh, another one. That one, when it has been introduced in 2004, didn't really gain much traction on the market, mainly because it requires a full digitalization of of the process, procurement process. So for many countries uh, within which uh, we didn't have yet full digitalization, uh, that was uh, connected with a huge amount of investment required to run this type of technique. Yep. So there was not much traction. But with the new directives and the type of requirements introduced in context of really pushing the digitalization agenda and central purchasing bodies actually being the first um group of addressees I guess of this they were the first one um, time wise to actually go digital the dynamic purchasing system seems to get uh, a little bit of more traction there has been over the last couple of years a discussion that it's, it will be interesting to see in upcoming years whether this really will take over. Dynamic purchasing system will become predominantly used technique in comparison with framework agreements. Because the difference here really is that the, the nature of dynamic purchasing system is that it's open right? Yeah. So if you have a new suppliers coming in, you can add them to uh, the dynamic purchasing system and that's being perceived as more competitive and and, and more open more to the market, more yeah. flexible, absolutely. But it's not for now huge success. Um, I would say that uh, increased numbers of usage of this technique we can see mainly in um, Scandinavian countries and on the other hand side we heard Uh, comments, um, for example, from Spain, uh, that the government in Spain does not really necessarily see um, the dynamic purchasing system as a technique that really proves its efficiency. Mm. There is a certain doubt into it. Uh, Similarly, um, when it comes on other hand side to framework agreements, the Romanian uh, government is quite skeptical and it's uh, not particularly fond of framework agreements and it's not Particularly promoting It's, it's yep. even um, Roxana contributed with 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 some comments uh, to that within the chapter. I think on on Romania, but also in ours, on the comparative, one, saying that there is a certain doubt. Maybe it's connected with the fact that it's quite closed, and and it, and it can have a potentially anti-competitive character too. Um, and then the last one is uh, as as a technique also that we l- looked a little bit more into were the generally understood e-procurement and e-auctions. Yep. And up here, um, at least from the data that we that we worked with, there there was not much to really report. Um, there is it, It's quite interesting because obviously there are different versions of e-procurements used and different systems, but there doesn't seem to be much um, knowledge shared or practices shared specifically about using of e-auctions. Um, as a as a as a specific tool for that, um, so everyone is uh, saying, well, there are some things, but can we really define it as that? There's not really maybe uh, that really highlighted as, as as such. So that's a. I would say again, my 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 beloved frameworks. That uh, is true. That are predominantly dominating here. This
0: so in a way that's that's already interesting. I think because always when there's when something's not there or lacking. It I think sparks an interest in every researcher where you think you want to explain it or maybe it is there, but we know maybe we need to look in different places. You you never know, right? There's all these questions that pop up. One maybe one final question that I have for you is question that's always come up with me is and i think i i referred to it already uh, when we moved on to this bit of the podcast episode is all of these things that this they're really relevant techniques but in what way are they different from uh centralized purchasing bodies as opposed to a, a single contracting authority also using mm-hmm. framework agreements or also using so what where is it simply that the uh, it becomes more important because you have more volume. So mm. the, the use of framework agreements is more important and it becomes more complex with more multiple players involved, etc. Or is there really a distinguishing factor between that single entity and that aggregated uh, purchasing through a bigger entity?
1: Well, I think that the, the, the scale of it makes it, on the one hand side, potentially having much bigger impact, Right. If that is in context of saving, in context of delivering all these different outcomes, uh, let's say sustainability, innovation, etc., but also complexity. This, this, you know, undoubtedly the the aspect of it is that when you're running, let's say, your framework agreement for yourself, and you are the only buyer as a contracting authority, and let's say it's a framework agreement um, with five suppliers you can see the the scale of challenges here will be quite different when you have a type of you know two levels of central purchasing body establishing a framework agreement that is then used by contracting authorities that then let's say run mini competition right so you have this all different levels yeah and then when you add to it um from con- uh, from central purchasing body let's say that uh, the users of your frameworks you have i don't know twenty five. 50, let's say. There was one um, framework agreement in Finland that has been challenged, a very interesting case that I I, um, know that our colleague Kirsi commented on and translated also, I think, in a blog post on uh, Albert's uh, blog that kind of listed all contracting authorities in Finland as potential users of that framework agreement. So, you know, the scale of it is already huge and then now add you know, let's say fifty, for example, of suppliers on it, or that not only makes it that much more complicated in context of uh, running it and administrating it, uh, cost uh, resources, but also I think quite complex legally speaking, because how how you really align that. I think a really interesting. Question here also, it's a little bit like on steroids, right? Last time that we discussed framework agreements, we talked about this maximum values and the challenge that when you reaching them, uh, the framework agreements is uh, stuff being... binding instead of the contracts later on um, awarded can be ineffective. And the question is, if you have like, so many parallel running procurements, how you control it that you really know which is the moment that they are being reached. So I don't think that there is something, a very uh, <laughs> elaborate <laughs> answer to your question. I don't think there is a very specific issue with central purchasing bodies using these techniques, but I think that they are just a type. Or on steroids, that the, the metaphor that comes to my mind, or through magnified mirror uh, yep. because of the scale of the complexity of them.
0: All right. I think um, it's always nice to end with complexity, right? It leaves us more opportunities to make more podcast episodes. Um, For sure. Just, just, just to recap. We've looked a bit at the Netherlands, and I think that's just a, you know, a, a case that highlights the differences between the member states uh, we talked a bit about autonomy versus obligatory participation, um, how these patchworks work, how intense cooperation can be, and and, um, clearly also what some of the techniques that are used um, to to, to actually make it happen in practice. So um, if we can move on to dessert, right? We've got a couple of minutes left. Um, I actually think it's more about sharing um, because the topic that we pick for today is how do you stay up to date in public procurement law? And um, this can be different for everyone, but we thought it would be of interest to at least share some of, of, or at least how we do it. And then perhaps um, this will spark some discussions, uh, perhaps on LinkedIn or Twitter, uh, if you're following us, uh, about your way of staying up to date. But let's pass the ball on Um, uh, in a couple of brief sentences. How do you stay up to date, Marta?
1: Um, I think that uh, single-handedly, I would say that LinkedIn is a really good source for me. I do tend to stick to as much as I can one social media platform um, for professional reasons being LinkedIn. And just, you know, people really sharing, if that's commission, new cases or blog posts or podcasts, it's a it's a variety of different sources from different people. And, and I think that I, yeah, you get quite a lot quite quickly and that would be, that that is quite nice, but one of the things that we discuss often uh, with with you, Willem, is also how really you get on top of following the newest case law, right? How you really make sure that you know what new case law is coming up. So, if any any of our listeners have some good strategy, are you just visiting the courts website regularly? Are you googling? What what you're doing? Tell us, because we for sure are up for a new new form of saying updated with the um, European Court of Justice case law for sure what and about I think, yourself
0: I think well I, I mean um, I, you'd tend to use LinkedIn as well I think blog posts so say uh, how to crack by Albert uh, Pedro's blog telesh.eu, if I'm if I'm correct uh, Michael Bowser's blog I think those are great ways of staying informed right um, but they do tend to focus a lot on the UK right um, For sure, yeah. uh, so in, in, there's some Dutch websites by public authorities that I use myself who tend to publish overviews of the, of the case law. And I think the answer to your question often will be, yeah, they use a paid service, right? So a notification by a paid service, such as legal intelligence. Um, but uh, perhaps there's better ways, right? Sometimes I feel like that Curia.eu could lose a little bit of IT improvement um, to Slightly. make it more accessible, even though it's, I mean, it works, right? It's not the most user-friendly interface, but it does tend to work. Um, but just
1: putting it out there, you know, like creating a type of system in which you can subscribe, let's say, to any case that comes out that is from particular legal source, right? So it's within the directive that we are mainly interested Anything that comes out, then there is a particular subscription list that you can, that would be so nice. So, whenever yeah. something comes out, it lands up in your inbox.
0: That's, I think, I feel like you're suggesting something to the court. So, I hope they're listening. Um, but yeah, no, court I agree. IT <laughs>
1: particularly. Yeah. Not no. the judges, but the IT people. I
0: think part of that's also caused by the fact that it's listed under internal market law, right? So, as a category, if you search, right, most of it's linked under that. And if you're lucky, if you put in public procurement or procurement as such that you end up with the right stuff. But perhaps a subcategory would be uh, would be great. Um, as a suggestion, hard. if we're making a wish list, right, Santa's not coming yes. for a long time, but maybe <laughs> this could already be on our list. So we've got blogs, perhaps our podcast for other people. I tend to stay up to date by talking to you, but uh, maybe that could also be, be of interest. Hopefully, um,
1: that's that's our ambition, right? Ultimately, that some people are uh, ex- keeping somehow updated through our blog posts. <laughs> uh, sorry, through our podcast.
0: <laughs> perhaps, yeah. So We've got blog posts. We've got these notifications that could perhaps improve a bit. You could listen to this podcast um, if that's useful. Uh, but please share if you've got particular newsletters that you follow or things that you find really useful to do, um, to stay up to date. We'd love to hear about it. Um, I think we've got a roundup. Uh, thanks so much uh, Marta for discussing centralized purchasing bodies and how to stay up to date in public procurement law. This was Bestek the Public Procurement Podcast.
1: This was Bestek, the Public Procurement Podcast. Do you want to contribute to today's discussion and share your thoughts on LinkedIn or Twitter? Do you have an idea for a future episode? Write to us at www.bestekpodcast.com.